Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of uh, gathering here together and time for evaluation in the middle of the semester, getting grades, thinking about projects, and that always uh, leads to a certain level of anxiety. And uh, we feel that perhaps uh, afraid we do poorly, people will think less of us. Eh, maybe that's true. Maybe some people do. But Lord, we are thankful to know that you never think less of us for being who we are. As long, Lord, as we are walking in your will and using the gifts you've given us, as long as uh, we're being faithful to you, you know that's what counts. Father, I pray that uh, we would remember that in our hearts not only today, on a day when uh, grades are on our minds, but every day. Anyone is examining us. Let us remember that you are the judge and that you as judge have pronounced us just and righteous and beloved in your sight. So, Lord, we pray that uh, we would rest in your mercy and your love and your favor. Pray, too, Lord, that we would appreciate your reign in Christ yet more today for having looked at the scriptures about um, the work that you have done, your mastery over history. We pray these things in Christ's name. Well, we're ready to look at the book of Revelation again. We've finished uh, from last time our sojourn through the seven letters to the seven churches. What is the book of Revelation like? Well, it's a little bit like either an action movie or a fast-moving comedy. Not many comedies are fast-moving. Sort of a thrill a minute. Things keep on moving along in the book of Revelation. Amazing things. You hardly have time to digest one. It's like, you know, Indiana Jones movie. You know, you just got done escaping from one thing, and here comes something else, you know. Or it's like a lecture that covers the history of politics from the 16th century to the 21st century in 90 minutes. Or, it's like one of those sermons you hear that goes from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 in 45 minutes. You can get lost. I mean, you know, there's lots of good stuff. There's lots of interesting things happening. It's possible to lose one's place. Have you ever been to one of those talks where, well, maybe you didn't go to one of those talks, and, and uh, people are just coming out, and, hey, well, how, well, how was the lecture? What was it like? I'm sorry I missed it. Oh, it was great. Well, what was it about? It was about everything. The book of Revelation is a little bit like that. It's, it's about everything. And, and one thing keeps coming after another, and we need to be ready for that everything. Well, having said we need to be ready for everything, I just realized that I'm not even ready to give this lecture because my notes are on the floor. Now I'm ready to give this lecture. What's the book of Revelation about? Chapters 4 to 11 are one giant block, one giant unit that I'd like to go through with you over the next while. What are the themes? What are, as, as everything happens, what should we single out? Well, we should single out, first of all, that there is worship to God, the Father and God the Son. Because God is worthy of all worship. That's a clear theme from chapters 4 and 5. Worthy of worship. Second, there's a scroll that has to do with human history. It's going to be opened. That scroll reveals God's mastery over human history. A scroll is unsealed, and it sets judgment loose on the earth, troubles on the earth. But even those troubles are under the sovereign lordship of Christ. Evildoers, Christians alike, will be touched. But Christians will be preserved, not finally harmed, even if they die. Overall... The general picture is that God reigns over all things. Suffering, 
warfare, strife, pestilence. He rules over it all. And it's the responsibility of believers to endure. It's the responsibility of unbelievers to repent as we see that. Now, it may not be only suffering. There may be some other things going on as well, which we'll talk about when the time comes. Revelation 4 and 5 start us off with angels. And let me just tell you one thing very quickly. We're going to survey 4 to 11 pretty fast. Let's pick up the speed and cover some chapters in just a couple minutes, in fact. Uh, chapters 4 and 5 are centered in the throne of God. We're lifted up to get a vision of heaven. And we see in chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, a splendid heavenly beings uh, surrounding the throne, magnificent creatures calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They worship God the Father. And there's a pattern we're going to see with the Father and the Son. It is, you are worthy, and a title given, to receive something. Because of something you did. You're worthy to receive something because of something you did. Now, in the first one, it's, You are worthy, O Lord and our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things. Because, they created, because God created all things, these living beings come and prostrate themselves before the throne of God and give their crowns, which I take to mean their, their power, their glory, their achievements, their splendor to God. Because what they have that's grand and great and powerful, they got from him and they give it back to him. He created all things and they give all things back to God. Now in his right hand, the throne of God, God himself has a scroll. He's holding it and it's sealed with seven seals. Chapter 5 begins with a question. The question is, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Now, in antiquity, a scroll that was significant was sealed. So, which signifies this is an important document. We have to distinguish between the document itself and the seals. The seals are not the scroll. Whatever you've seen, whatever you've heard, the scroll and the seals are two different things. The opening of the seals is preliminary to the reading of the scroll. So, who's worthy to open the seals, meaning who's worthy then to get to the point that it can be revealed? And, of course, the original answer is, uh, well, verse 2 asks the question, who's worthy? Verse 3, it doesn't seem like anybody can be found on heaven or on the, in heaven or on the earth. Nobody can open it or, or look inside it. And John begins to weep because he wants to know what's in that scroll. But one of the elders says, you know, don't worry, someone will be found who is worthy, verse 5 of chapter 5. Who will it be? Well, it's going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, because he has triumphed. He will open the seals. Again, the seals are not the content. Now, let's just step back for a second. A scroll that was written on both sides and sealed would be an important document. Not everything that people wrote in antiquity would have this kind of a, of a status. Both sides and then sealed. In fact, most things in antiquity were written on a piece of paper, just like today. Paper was much more expensive, but they had paper made out of papyrus. Or possibly could be written on a tablet. And, you know, school children wrote in these things. Most documents then as now were not really terribly important. This was a very important document has something precious in it. It could be a deed would be written and sealed this way, or a testament to be opened upon somebody's death, or some kind of a, 
promissory document could be sought. And people have wondered, you know, the book of Revelation never tells what the scroll is. And so people, theologians, who have to do something to earn their living, are charged with the responsibility of trying to find out what that might be. There are three answers. Now, here, I'm, going to, I'm telling you something very deliberately. I'm telling you there are three answers given by good, solid, evangelical theologians that you and I should both respect, and they differ. And I'm mentioning this explicitly to you so that you would understand that although I'm confident of a lot of things as I speak on the book of Revelation, I am not confident of everything. Good people disagree, even if we take fundamentally a similar approach. So here's three answers to the question. One is uh, that, it, that it describes the decrees of God for human history. Your reading in Wilcock takes this view. It's a full account of what God has determined as the destiny of the world, or it is the explanation of history. That's what Wilcox says on page 69. Now, you know, lots of good backers to this, and after all, I assigned Wilcox, so, you know, I think he's got good judgment overall. But the problem I have with this is that this seems to make the seals and the scroll one and the same What when they go to explain it. And the other thing that, that um, well, let's just leave it at that. One view. Another view is that it's the book of life, the book of life. Now, this second view, that it's the book of life, makes a lot of sense to me. Because the book of life is mentioned already in chapter 3, verse 5. Those who persevere and so on, their name will be written in the book of life. Uh, faithful churches. Chapter 20, 15, also mentions the book of life. It will be opened on the last day. So, we have the book of life at two prominent places. It makes sense to have us long to open, you see, this, this actually, I like this one because it says the seals are tragedy in human history. But you have to go through the tragedy and the trouble and the warfare and, and the conquest, some good conquest, of human history before you can get to the end of the story and the book of life is revealed and everyone uh, gets to celebrate their inclusion in the Lamb's book of life and their inclusion in eternity. Uh, and, of course, the Lamb who opens it would have the greatest right to open that book because, after all, he's the one who created, we might say, or uh, created the possibility of that book being written. We ourselves would want to see it open. We can see why John would weep about that. And I think it's, a, it's very, very plausible that this is the book of life. There is another possibility I think is also extremely plausible, and that is that the scroll is the final gift of the kingdom of God. Now, these... Two and three actually overlap. Uh, that, it's, that it's the final gift of the kingdom of God. It is God's final will or testament for mankind, proceeding from his throne at the end of history. The reason why I like this one is that it fits the historical context. Scrolls written on two sides and sealed with various seals were often testaments or deeds or wills. The other one is, if you trace out the seven seals. I don't know if anybody would here would know this because we don't tend to read the book of Revelation this way. But if you trace out the seven seals, do you know what the seventh seal does? Does anybody know? It, it unleashes another string of seven. You know, read through it yourself. Read through Revelation again. You'll see when the seven seals open, then now I see people head nodding because they remember. That starts a cycle of seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet sounds all the way to the end of chapter 11. And when the seventh trumpet sounds, we could turn. I'll show it to you. 
Um, when the seventh trumpet sounds, 11.15, there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And they praise God and they thank God that at last his judgment has come, that the evil nations have been overthrown, and God's reign has begun. So I like that because it comes at the end. The truth is that I like, I'm, I'm deeply enamored of two different views. And I'm pretty sure one of them is right. But I change my mind sometimes. I tend to think number three is right because just of following out the logic of the visions. But if somebody, you know, wanted to pick a fight with me about, about uh, you know, that it's the book of life, you know, you really couldn't do it with me. The book of Revelation is my chance to be amiable and agree with everybody. Because everybody who studies hard has something they can, you know, they can advance their cause. So I'm, I'm happy to be agreeable with the book of Revelation. Well, conclusion then is this. We do have a scroll. It's either God's rule to be un- unleashed or revealed or fulfilled at the end of history, or it's the book of life. Two good things. And then a lot of events that lead up to that. And... Again, the question is, who is worthy to open this scroll? Apparently no one. Until we read, back again in chapter 5, there is someone. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has triumphed, verse 5. He will open the scroll and its seven seals. Then, in one of those little flights that you take in the book of Revelation, verse 6 says, Then I saw a, what do you expect? What do you expect? A lion. What do you get? Then I saw a lamb. Because Jesus is the lion and he is the lamb. He roars and yet he is also the lamb who was led to the slaughter. And we hear that Jesus is also worshipped. He is worshipped in a very similar set of terms. The way the fathers worshipped. You are worthy. To open the scroll, 5-9, and you are worthy to receive power, honor, glory, and praise because, now it changes, not because he's the creator, but because you were slain and purchased men to be a kingdom and priests. That's why he's worthy. And that's why we could say that it fits that he's both the lion and the lamb, the lion who roars and rules, the, the regal lion, and yet... Jesus in his power, we must always join with Jesus in his humility. The lamb was slain from the foundation of the world to redeem his people. Incidentally, I, I do think that lion and lamb are you know, both kind of fit either one book of life or a rule over history. So he takes the scrolls and he begins to open them up. Chapter 6. When he opens them up, when the lamb opens, living creatures say in a loud thundering voice, Come, and a series of riders come out. I'm going to ask you, do you know where in the Old Testament, because you know by now that to make sense of the book of Revelation, you have to know the Old Testament, where is there a series of four horses on riders in visions from the Old Testament? Where is it? It's a good guess, because he's often with Daniel. Ezekiel's another good guess. But I'm still waiting for the right guess. The answer is Zechariah. Who gets credit? 10,000 bonus points. And in Zechariah chapter 6, if you want to check it out, you can do that. 
Remember, 500,000 bonus points gets you one extra point on the test. Zechariah chapter 6. I'm not going to read the whole thing uh, to you, but uh, Zechariah is often used. The first, second, and third voices I looked up, and there before were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled. Who are these, my Lord? There are four spirits going out from the presence of the Lord throughout the whole earth. And then he uh, goes on from there. Uh, so I take the imagery to be coming from Zechariah chapter 6. Now, I want to tell you just as plainly as I can that, re- that the first rider is deeply mysterious. So I'm just going to skip to the second one. I'm going to come back to the first one in a few minutes. But I wanna, I'd like to start with what I know and then to move to what I don't know. I know that the horses, by and large, are symbolic of strife, and conflict, and battle. That's what horses did in antiquity. Why did you ride a horse in antiquity? To get from here to there? How did you get from here to there? You walked, or if you were a little better off, you rode a, you rode a donkey. If you had a horse, your horses were more expensive. They break down more often. They have to be taken to the repair shop more often. They eat more. They're harder to work with. If you have a horse, it's because you want it for battle. So the very idea of a horse already suggests battle to us. Battle. Second, when you look at what happens, you see why the horses would signify battle, because it's what it says. Chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. For the red horse, that's the second horse. The red horse is the second horse. Read with me if you would. I heard the second living creature say, Come, and a red horse came out. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. The the red horse unquestionably represents warfare and bloodshed unleashed upon the earth. Sorrow, violence, no peace, war and the sword. And that's a mark of human history leading up to the day when God's reign begins in the book of of life is open. Warfare. Do you agree with that? Is warfare the mark? Even when there appears to be peace, there are other kinds of war, even if there's not military battle. There's cold war. There's economic war. There's social war. There's class war. There's race war. There's gender wars. There's all kinds of wars going on. And of course, it seems like any time, you know, if, if we had full political awareness, we would know that right now, any given day, you could pick in almost any year, there are dozens of simmering conflicts across the globe. Most of them don't get in the news. The little, you know, the mountains of, of uh, Yemen and uh, Northern Ireland, and separatist groups in, off in the mountains of uh, Eastern Europe, you know, various places in Africa and South America. There's always war. Mexico always seems to be strife. The black horse also describes the way things are in this age. The black horse comes out in verses 5 and 6. The marks of the black horse are that its rider is holding a pair of scales in his hand, and he's calling out, saying, a quart of wheat for a day's wages, or a quart of wheat for a denarius, which is a day's wage for labor. Three quarts of barley for a day's wages, but do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, this seems very obscure initially, but all you have to do is think a little bit. 
How are you doing if you have to work an entire day to earn one quart of wheat? How are you doing? You're doing poorly. How are you doing if you have to work one day to get a quart, three quarts of, what did I say, barley already? I meant to say wheat. No, there's a difference. A whole day for wheat and then a whole day for three quarts of barley. Now, we use, you know, we have barley soup and barley bread, but do you know what barley was ordinarily used for in antiquity? It was used as grain for animals. It'd be a little bit like saying today, corn, because we have sweet corn and so forth, but you know, most corn is made for things like corn starch and just, you know, add texture to food and you feed it to pigs and so on to fatten them up and you feed it to cows and whatnot. Most, the great majority of all the corn that's grown in the world is fed to animals or it's, you know, filler in various things like pudding and whatnot. It's not the glamour food, that's the point. So you're doing poorly. But then he goes on to say, don't damage the oil or the wine. Now, what would oil and wine be? Give us this day our daily bread. Wheat is our daily subsistence. What's oil and wine? Surplus, luxury, pleasantness. Uh, not, not all oil was necessarily the sign of, of superabundance or that you're wealthy. But even the good things of life and uh, pleasant life, abundance, maybe modest abundance, but still abundance. So what's the idea then? That the average person is going to suffer hardship while the extraordinary, the wealthy, always have an abundance. And isn't that the way it is? Now, we lose sight of that because we live in America. But can I just remind you that America is, you know, if not the richest, certainly one of the richest nations that's ever lived. Most of the people in this room, and I know I'm talking to students, most of the people in this room would make medieval kings envious with their possessions. The very possession of electricity and a car, air conditioning, central heat, things that we think of as just minimal, obvious, basic. I mean, yeah, of course. We're civilized, right? In the West, in recent years, we have fundamentally solved the problem of production. That is to say... Everybody has, most people have all they need. But that doesn't mean that everybody throughout the world, remember how small a proportion of the world population we're representing here with America and Germany and England and Sweden and so forth, right? And remember that this solution to the problem of production has only taken place in this century. So by and large, human history is marked by, even now, is marked by the problem of scarcity, People not having enough. So I take this first two writers to be describing the way things are throughout the gospel age until Christ comes again and opens the book and brings his kingdom. The third writer is uh, somewhat similar. The third writer is riding a pale horse. The pale horse represents death. Let's look at it. Its name was death. Verse Eight says, and Hades was falling close behind. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, in case you don't miss it, these are signs of, of death and destructions, the way people die, it's the way hardship comes. 
to the world. It's drawn here from Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 5, for example, verses 12 to 17. The Lord says to Ezekiel about the punishment of Jerusalem, A third of your people will die by plague or perish by famine or fall by the sword within your walls, and another third I will scatter throughout the winds and pursue with a drawn sword. You hear the same imagery. Or Ezekiel 14.21, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. How much worse will it be when I send against Jerusalem my four plagues, sword, famine, wild beasts, and disease, to kill its men and their animals? So these four are proverbial for instruments of God's judgment that strike the earth. The gist of it then is that there will be warfare, the red horse, scarcity, the black horse, and disease, the pale horse, and death. Those are marks of the gospel age. Again, we might say, well, you know, we've solved that. We have our, our medical complexes, and we've, we've licked disease. You know, people won't die of tuberculosis or smallpox anymore. Now, we've figured things out today. But if you go to a nursing home, you will see that we haven't solved the problem of death. We've delayed it. And furthermore, sadly, we don't really know how to handle some of the things we do as we senselessly prolong people's lives sometimes. I'm not in favor of euthanasia. Don't misunderstand. But I do know that people are tortured by misguided efforts to, you know, preserve their last three months or six months or, or six weeks of life in many, many occasions. And in fact, if you think we're all better, just take a look around and see how many hospitals there are in the region, and you'll know that we're not all better. We haven't solved the problem of illness. Or if you like, uh, just, you know, kind of go over your body from head to toe. So a friend of mine says, if you wake up and you're past 40 and you don't feel any aches and pains, you're in heaven. So, uh, this is the way the world is. Is that all there is to it? Can we come back to the white horse? Is there anything else to be said? Is it just disease and scarcity and war? Is that all? Well, there is a rider on a white horse, and this is one of those things that's widely debated. The rider on the white horse comes first. First one released. Some people think, if you want to be frightened about how difficult it is to interpret the book of Revelation, some people think that the rider on the white horse is Jesus. Did you know that? And some people think that the rider on the white horse is the Antichrist. That's how much variation there is in the interpretation of the book of Revelation. Now, let's just see if we can suggest why the rider would be Jesus. Well, the rider would be Jesus because... Because it's white. And Jesus is white, and white is pure. He's associated with whiteness and purity. Heavenly, holiness, white. Suggests that maybe it's Jesus. And the writer goes out to conquer. Curiously, in 5.5, just a few verses earlier, we read the lion has conquered. The writer receives a crown. And Jesus wears crowns in the book of Revelation. And the rider in chapter 19, verse 11, is kind of like this rider. And that rider is certainly Jesus. Besides, if it isn't Jesus, why would anybody want to have the seals opened if all you have is unremitting tragedy? There's got to be some good news, say those who claim that the rider is Jesus. Well, maybe it's not Jesus, though. Somebody says, and I've reversed the order from the way it is in your notes. So let's go back to the idea that this is not Jesus. For one thing, 
Uh, the writer is part of the seals on the book, and Jesus is the one who opens the seals, so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to have Jesus who's opening the seals be one of the seals, does it? But also say that if this is Jesus, he isn't marked out very well. Revelation chapter 1, it's very clear it's Jesus. Revelation 19, it's clear that it's Jesus. Why isn't it more clear if this is Jesus? And besides, he seems to be lumped in with the other riders in the group. I mean, the others are all bad. How can this one be so different from the other riders? So maybe it isn't Jesus. Some people point to various other things. The idea that authority was given to him is the way, well, it's the way the allies of Satan are usually described. Read it over and over in chapters 12 and 13. They're given authority by the beast, or the beasts are given authority by the dragon and so forth. So people say, maybe it's kind of like Jesus, but counterfeiting Jesus. Third view, and I will tell you it is mine, is that the writer isn't Jesus, but he's not bad like the others either. Notice how it says simply of the first writer that he is riding a white horse, he's given a bow and a crown, and he goes out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now these things, white is good, a bow is never a bad symbol in the book of Revelation, or really anywhere else. It does signify warfare, but after all, it says he's going out to conquer. Crowns are generally good, and conquest is generally a good thing. But Jesus is called the one who conquers. In fact, through Christ, we're more than conquerors and so forth. Conquering, by and large, is a good thing in the Bible. Somebody conquers, they're usually good. It's kind of like a, a happy word, you know in the Bible. Not always, but the majority of the time. So I take it that this rider is on a white horse and has a crown and is conquering is indeed doing something good. He's doing some good conquests. Now, I'm going to suggest this to you through uh, a little overhead that I have for you. But some of the imagery of Revelation comes from the New Testament. As you look at that particular guide up there, what you will notice is that the book of Revelation seems to be getting its imagery about human history, Revelation 6, from Matthew. Now, you know Matthew chapter 24 is what's called Jesus' uh, Olivet Discourse or Eschatological Discourse, uh, often taken to be his discussion of the end times. But... If you read it carefully, and I talk about this in another course, some of you have taken or will take it. If you read it carefully, what you notice is that a great many, if not all, of the prophecies in, Deut in Matthew 24 are fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem, at least partially fulfilled, by the year 70 A.D. Now, the things that are predicted are wars, Matthew 24, 6, and here in Revelation chapter 6, we have wars. We have nation against, rising against nation. You know that language, perhaps, from Matthew. And we have international strife, warfare and bloodshed and sword, described in Revelation 6. We have, we have famines, described in Matthew 24, 7, and in Revelation 6, 6. We have earthquakes in 24, 7, and pestilence in 6, 8. That's the only clear difference between the two um, narratives. There's persecution in Matthew 24, 9 and in 
Revelation 6, 9 and 10. There's travail in the heavens, signs of destruction and unraveling of things in the heavens in 24, sorry, in 24, 29, and in 6, 12 to 14. And finally, in Matthew 24, 14, it says that the gospel will go to all the nations. That's the, it's the one clearly positive thing in Matthew 24. And what I'm saying is that that could very well, and I think it does indeed, match up with the first writer. There's got to be one positive thing. Otherwise, why would they want the scrolls, why would they want the seals to be open? Why would he weep if, it's, if there's nothing positive? And to put it another way, isn't it true that the march of human history includes conquests, some of which is bloodshed and warfare and senseless violence, like the Red Horse, but some of it is good. There is good conquest taking place. Aren't Christians called more than conquerors? Don't we take the gospel to the nations? Don't we, at least in a preliminary way, begin to bring people to obedience to Christ's reign? And not that that's the dominant thing in this age, but there is real progress. I mean, there are more Christians, far more Christians today, far more that name the name of God and claim God as Savior today than at any other point in human history. And not only are there more in absolute numbers, but a lot of people think that even in percentage, the number of genuine Christians is higher than it's ever been before. And although I'm not wildly optimistic about the future, I'm also not wildly pessimistic either. So I take it that the first writer is indeed uh, not Christ himself, but not Antichrist either. It is a description of the fact that some good conquest, a white horse rider with a crown, with authority, going out to conquer, is doing good conquering work. Okay, fifth seal. The fifth seal, another mark of this age, is persecution of the church. 6, 9 to 11. I saw, he says, under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out, asking God to avenge their blood. How long? They're told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants, verse 11, and the brothers who were to be killed as they had was completed. Again, a look at the whole gospel age. There's always persecution going on. You may think it's not so today, but in fact... Some people think there are more Christians being persecuted right now than ever before. In the Sudan right now, terrible suffering of the Christians, especially in the South, um, in manners that I won't even describe. This is an age of, of, like every age, an age of persecution. The sixth seal opens the avenging judgment described in verses 12 to 17. There is a great earthquake. The sun... You tell, just think, what do you think this is describing? The sun turned black, the moon turned like blood, the stars in the sky fell to the earth, the sky receded like a scroll, every mountain and island was removed from its place. What does that sound like? What does that sound like? Some people say the crucifixion. What else does it sound like? It sounds like, if you've read the Old Testament and gotten in, imbued with it, does sound like, it sounds like the end of the world, doesn't it? The sky falling, the, you know, the stars falling, and moon turned to blood, and so on. Then the kings of the earth, verse 15, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty. That's all the good ones. And then every slave and free man, 
every free man, that is to say, ordinary free man, hid in caves and among rocks in the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, an angry Lamb. For the day of their great of their wrath is come, and who can stand? Now, I don't know about you, but I've thought a couple times about the way I'd like to die and the way some ways I wouldn't like to die. My favorite way of dying, because it's kind of two or three things at once, is I, what I'd really like to do is die of a heart attack on a tennis court. Or failing that, because you can still play tennis when you're 75 or something like that, see, so it would imply health, fitness, sufficient you know, means of getting there, being in my right mind, and sudden death and so on. It's all, all the good stuff. On the bad end, I would say being buried alive would be real low on my list. I don't know about you. That's definitely in the bottom five. All right, the kings, the rich, the mighty, the generals are saying, I would rather be buried alive under a mountain than face the wrath of the lamb. Not even the wrath of the lion. But the wrath of the lamb who was slain, but they did not take the opportunity to repent, which is going to be a theme all throughout the book of Revelation. They didn't take the opportunity to repent, and now the day to repent is over, and it's the day of wrath. And they would rather be buried alive than look at the lamb. But you know what? They will have to look at the lamb, and they will have to render an account for their body. This is a description of the last day. We come to the end of human history. The book of Revelation does not march step by step through history. It moves around. It's the way God sees the world. God doesn't see the world 1898, 1898, 1900, 1901. That's not the way he sees it. He sees everything. He sees beyond the end of time. and He sees before the beginning of time. He sees all things present to him at all times. It's not that he's unmoved by it or becomes passive or distant. He still cares about what he sees, but he doesn't have to. He's not wondering what's going to happen next. He's the master of time. He made time, and so when he gives a vision of the way he sees human history, he's not bound by time. He, it's not always next, next, next. He says, as I look at human history, these are the tragedies and the triumphs, and this is where it's going. The day of the wrath of the Lamb is where it's going, and then. He poses a question. The day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Well, chapter 7 gives an answer. Chapter 7 gives the answer twice over. And we're going really back. I want to tell you, we're going back to, the, to before the last day. At chapter 6, 12 to 17, we went to the last day. Now we're going beforehand again, because God can move around in time. Who can stand? Well, 7.1 says... After this, I saw four angels standing. The angels can stand in the presence of God. They're not afraid of the wrath of the Lamb. They're doing God's work. They're holding back the wind that blows on the land and the sea. And that's not all. There's another group that's standing. They're described in verse 11. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and around the four living creatures. And there's, uh, there's somebody else standing as well and that is the people of God verse 9 after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation tribe people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb you see 
This is now a description of the redeemed. Because the kings and the mighty men and the rich and the generals and the slaves and the free men say, I can't stand it. I can't stand the wrath of the Lamb. And I can't stand on that day. I fall down quivering. But the people of God stand. They're not afraid. There's nothing to fear. They are covered by the Lamb's blood. And they love the Lamb. And they love God. And God loves them. And God comforts them. So the redeemed stand with the angels praising God. If chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, describe the suffering on the world until the last day, until all the number is fulfilled of those who must die in persecution, chapter 7 describes them a different way. The different description is now that they're sealed, they're protected. The angels are holding back the wind. And they're holding white ro- they're wearing white robes and they're holding palm branches in their hand, verse nine and ten, and they're they're praising God. They're saying, Salvation belongs to our God and who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They're praising God. They're nothing they're afraid of. Who are these people standing and praising God, unafraid? Well, verse fourteen tells us they are those who have come out of the great tribulation, who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And they'll never again be hungry, verse 16, or thirsty. The sun won't beat down on them. The Lamb will lead them to springs of living water and will wipe every tear from their eyes. Who are they? They're the 144,000. They're the 12 tribes of Judah, of Israel. They're Judah and Reuben and Gad and Asher and Naphtali. They are the 12 tribes of Israel, beginning with Judah, and they're the 12 pillars of the church, the 12 by 12. 144 times 10 times 10 times 10. Perfection, perfection, perfection. They're all the saints from the Old Testament, all the saints from the New Testament, and all their number. Not a literal 144,000. Thousand is just a good, big, round number. It's all you need. Thousands, plenty. And 12 tribes and 12 apostles. It's all the saints. It's everyone, whether they've been persecuted and died or not. It's all the people who have suffered tribulation. It's all the people of God. This is not a particular time that we're thinking of. This is, this is just a picture of all of God's people standing before God. Chapter 6, the seals reveal trouble and hardship. Chapter 7, it reveals that whatever trouble and hardship come, God's people stand before him, protecting him and praising him. That's the way God sees the world. And that is the sixth seal.